and welcome to another episode of the View from the Lab podcast. Today I'm joined by a true enthusiast for STEM subjects and STEM careers, Dr. Anne-Marie Imaphadon. Anne-Marie is a champion of underrepresented groups in STEM and is the CEO of the innovative STEMETS Group, a social enterprise that encourages girls and young women between the ages of 5 and 25 to pursue careers in science, technology, engineering and maths. In our conversation, we hear about her love of maths and computing and her journey from school to receiving her master's degree in maths and computing from the University of Oxford at just age 20. She's a published author of two books and also appeared on the UK's Countdown Quiz show as the resident maths expert. And if this wasn't enough, she is also the current president of the British Science Association. We had so much to talk about, so without further ado, let's hear Anne-Marie's View from the Lab. Hi Anne-Marie and welcome to the View from the Lab podcast. Thanks for having me, excited to be here. Good. It's really nice to have you on this morning. And for context, we are kind of at the beginning of the, 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 the school year, September 2023. And uh, I wanted to kind of start, I'd like to talk to my guests a little bit about their background and their love of STEM and how that came about. So um, my first question is, uh, wh- when was it when you realised that you actually loved maths? Because a lot of people sometimes have a negative view of maths sometimes. So can you remember when you were a young child about, oh, this thing is actually quite interesting to me. What was it that kind of suddenly sparked that interest when you were, you know, in, in primary school, maybe? So what the reason, the, the love that I have for maths, um, I always say is based on its reliability. Okay. And I think for me, there are a lot of things, even, and in school, right? Now, now I reflect on I don't know, my English lessons or... I don't know, even something, I mean, geography, I guess, has historic kind of precedence for why things are the way they are. But I remember with maths, it just made sense. There was no extra complications. There were no quirks or exceptions. And if there was an exception, actually, you know, by the time you got to that part of the curriculum or the syllabus or whatever, like, yeah, there's a reason why that exception kind of makes sense. Or there was a proof, right, that someone did. And so we understand the exception. Um, I I loved the reliability of it and the fact that um, obviously in primary, there's a lot of, I mean, across education, there's a lot of repetition. That's how folks learn. But that each year we'd come back and it'd be the same again. There'd be no, you know, there'd be an extra extension, but it was very reliable in that, yeah, we we did that. That was, Those were the timetables in year two and there's still the timetables in year three and they will be the timetables in year four. Whereas other subjects seem to invent new things or create new things or you discover new things. And I'd be like, there's all these things to remember. Whereas with maths, I just follow along the logic and life is good and we can do this ad infinitum. And it will still be, you know, those multiplication questions will still have the same answer. Um, and so that was what I love. When I say that, folks are always like, you know, were there unreliable things in other parts of your life? And it's like, no, I just, this was just a, a nice place where things just worked um and so that's why I've always loved maths because I can depend on it (laughs) an element of truth do you think as in almost like you're feeling that there's some kind of truth in there and that's the I say I guess it's reliable I suppose but um was it kind of uh maybe you weren't thinking in a philosophical way age five or six but um um, whether yeah there's so a bit of certainty I suppose you felt like you're making progress as well do you think in that sense yeah, there's there's a certainty and reliability in the progress. And and I think there are a lot of folks who like maths or say they like maths because there's always a right answer. Yeah. But I think for me, it was less about the right answer. It was more about 
I could, if you, if you give me another, you know, if someone has the five pineapples in the supermarket, right, as, as we always have as the, the kind of guests and they're adding more, more pineapples into their trolley, if that was apples or if that was laptops or if that was cars that they were putting in their trolley, the same logic would apply. And so it was a reliable set of tools, I guess, um, in order to process life, to understand things. Um, and so from a really young age, I remember being like, yeah, we knew, I know that like you've given me this problem and I know how to solve it because <laughs> I know the maths and I get it. And it made sense first time. And I can rely on, even if I don't know the answer now, I will get to an answer because I have a process. I have a tool. I have an operation that I can use no matter what the question might be. So there's, there's almost like a reassurance that I guess I still now have as an adult that it's like, I mean, life is more complicated than maths, but there was a reassurance that, you know, if nothing else, I could use maths to, there's some mathematical process I can use to solve this. And I assume because you, obviously you are very well known for being very good at maths as well. And what, at what point did people say that to you? As in, did you ever kind of recognise it in yourself and like look around the classroom and think, you know, why are these guys still doing this uh, when I'm on like page 82 or whatever? Or was it a teacher that said, uh, you know, Anne-Marie is very, very advanced in mathematics. Was it something you kind of recognised yourself a little bit before someone told you and said, oh, let's, let's kind of, we need to, we need to direct this, uh, this child in a particular direction. How does it, how does that come about? So it, it, I'm, I'm not very self-aware, very perceptive in a lot, in a lot of things and folks won't believe me, but there's, there's a few things as I tell my story that it's like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't actually notice. I didn't realise. Okay. I think the whole being good at math things, I don't, um, I didn't, it wasn't something I was super conscious of. Mostly because, you know, in my primary classroom, I wasn't the only person that really enjoyed the maths, right? I wasn't the only person that would come in from the playground before school. You know, there were a little crew of us, right, that would come in and do maths before school because we didn't want to be freezing in the playground. Um, and so I, it was never, I never felt that I was special or I was different. And still till today, you know, as much as there's the genius and the, you know all the all the accolades and all the rest of it I still feel like it's a, a lot of folks there are a lot of folks that are able to access this or given the opportunity could excel in this kind of way so I think for me personally I didn't really I wasn't the first one that noticed that I was good at maths and I actually didn't it wasn't until the GCSE result came through at 10 that I was like wow okay so they didn't know I was a 10 year old and I have passed this thing I see now what folks might have been saying, um, but it was actually my, it was a teacher and, and you know, as a parent, I'm not a parent, but you know, I know loads and get to meet loads and have some of my own. And I think as a parent, it's kind of hard, right? You, you almost need those comparators to understand and to know that someone might be slightly ahead, right? Because it's all relative. Whereas there was a teacher early on that said, basically the way they framed it was she's bouncing off the walls not not sitting down <laughs> and being calm in class she's you know talking to her mate she's completely you know always distracted if we ask her the questions she knows the answers we think there's something in it but for my sanity <laughs> let's give her you know I've heard there, there are some children that do this accelerated things let's try that so that then she can leave the other kids alone and they can all focus on the work that they need to do even if she doesn't need to do it oh, I see okay so so to, uh, interestingly, how did you, so obviously did your, your GCSE at uh, 10, but how does that look in kind of school? Did they just like, again, chuck a textbook at you and you just had to work by yourself on it? Or were you actually given any support in that? Or, or maybe didn't need the support, but was it just like, oh, in math time, Anne-Marie's doing this, everyone else is going to do this. And then they just put you in for the exam at a local secondary school, I guess. Is that So that was it. Yeah. I mean, that, that was pretty much it. So we, so I, and I had this throughout school with maths in particular, 
um I, there was always and and it's one of those things that you know because it builds that on the logic you can kind of ask questions every now and then but most of it you know if you've understood the bit before makes sense if you are kind of doing that self-guided uh, learning so my when my teacher was suggesting it they, you can enter as an external candidate so I actually did that in a secondary school around the corner from where, where I live where I live now where we were living at the point at that point um and then had actually had extra support outside of school w- within that exam center so being able to kind of join classes every now and then um or being able to at least you know work through GCSE papers or GCSE um you know like the CGP books you know all those kinds of things to to kind of enjoy and I really enjoyed it because like I said it was it wasn't repetition it was always something new or something extended that still replied still applied or relied on those basics of multiplication or those basics of um you know statistics or you know whatever it might be um in fact the the only bit I hated was circle theorems and I still hate to this day circle theory okay circle so um as a non-mathematician what is what is your problem with your those circle theorems is it because they're a bit curvy and uh, what is it that that kind of challenge you or is it because it's just an irritating subject or because it's kind of philosophically maybe not um doesn't fit in with the other bits of maths. What is it? Would you say is is the is the irritation there? It might be that it doesn't fit, but it was it, it. And I think it doesn't fit because there's a lot of memorizing that you have to do. And so it's like, yeah, if you draw that line there, you draw that line yeah, there, and you draw that line there, then it just you just have to remember this part of the theorem, which is that this you know this adds up to that or that is always going to cross over or whatever it might be. And it's like, okay, cool, but wh- why? And I think when you get to a higher level, then yes, you start to understand the why on, on like geometrically why those things work. But as it's presented at GCSE, it doesn't, re- to me, it didn't seem to fit or connect and just relied on a lot of memory. And that was what I didn't like about physics. A lot of physics is maths, but there's also, I don't know, this planet was called this because at that point that person was in charge. And it's like, well, no. <laughs> But history is important. I'm older and wiser now and I, I, I recognise that, that history is as important as the maths and life is, is more complicated than the maths. So there we go. Apologies for interrupting this lovely podcast, but I just wanted to tell you about an event uh, which is on the 17th of November 2023. It's between 9.30 and 4 and it's for our GCSE science teachers. It's going to be called the GCSE Science Symposium. It's a face-to-face event, as I said, we have a selection of speakers relevant to our GCSE spec, focusing on different things such as practical data analysis, understanding the way our assessments work. They will have opportunities to learn, listen and discuss. There will also be a special guest who's Dr Jasper Green, who you're listening to now, who will be there as well on the day. So we'd love you to come along and join us. It's £99, it is right in the heart of London, it's an 80 strand and to book your place or a place for someone in your team, you need to go to the Professional Development Academy, so Pearson Professional De- Development Academy, and that is pdacademy.pearson.com, um, and then register and sign in and uh, get your place on that uh, lovely day of science goodness in November. Thanks for listening. I'll let you go back to the podcast. Obviously, you, you, you didn't well at maths. How did computing fit in? As in, again, um, I know things improve over time in terms of computing but I don't know what happens myself I mean I, I should know because I'm a parent of <laughs> from primary school teachers but I don't really talk about computing particularly in any way in terms of you know I don't know if they do coding or, or what have you but did you how did that come about did you then do you have to wait to secondary school then to get your hands on like a computer and think oh this looks quite similar to math or mathematical or, or was somebody saying well actually Anne-Marie needs to have a look at this this would be a good kind of 
self project? How did that kind of come about? No, so the computing one was also still in primary school. So I did the ICT and the Maths GCSE at the same time. In right, okay. Six. okay. Um, and the computing, I think, again, there's something, it, we call it, it's like deterministic, right? It's if you if you say this, then that, right? And, it, and again, it, it, it happens again and again and again. And, and it's the same kind of reliability, the same sorts of principles. If you go really far back, which I was able to do when I did my master's, then yeah, they do, they do obviously, they do link together. You know, most of the computer scientists that you have now as academics have their roots in maths and as mathematicians, it, it was, you know, a, a field born out of maths as a concept. And so the two of them were actually really well linked, but that's not necessarily something you're able to explore in GCSE. Um, or explore early on or that I explored in primary but we had a lot of devices at home I was obsessed with almost all of them wanting to understand how they worked what you know it, you know other people would play school and they'd put their you know their taught their dolls and their toys out and they talk to them as a teacher whereas I'd be like okay there's access right or there's excel on this computer how might I represent the, the classes on Excel? How might I represent them on Access? How many classes do we have? We have to store students and teachers and grades and subjects. Why don't we try and do that? How do we smash that together? Oh, okay, cool. I might need a primary key. What is a primary key? And so that was my exploration of computing and of ICT. And I feel like the age I was at or the age that I am or the time I was born was almost kind of perfect to be able to access some of that. Whereas if I was maybe five years older, you know, I might have taken a different path, right? Of technology, the accessibility, the, under, you know, the, um, the, the learning curve, I guess, involved in it has got shallower and shallower and shallower as, as time has got on. Um, and so for me, you know, building that website, being able to see in AOL online and see behind and see the code of, of how that was working, being able to then be like, okay, cool. So if I put a triangle, that triangle bracket thing, and then I put another one and I've got B in it, then that will make it bold. Okay. And it's always going to make it bold. That's always going to be something that happens unless I miss one of the triangles or I don't put the slash in the right place or, you know, and so it was the same kind of reliability that I was able to see. And then again, I still see now in life where, you know, I had to talk about this in my book, but you know, the settings on your microwave and the settings on your TV, there are areas of overlap that means that, that, you know, maybe you can control your experience using your devices a little bit more because of that reliability and that transferability of those standards of even just a setting is a cog, yeah. Yeah. right? And so, you know, it's all of that. So it, it's the same, it's actually, ultimately it's the same, it's the same subject, which I learned when I ended up doing my degree in maths and computer science. But early on, it was, it was still that reliability and that being able to apply it as a tool to problems it's just that they were slightly they weren't how many cars or pineapples someone's put in a trolley um it was slightly different problems that i was i was able to explore and try out with the tech tools so did you so you went so you went to oxford what age were you uh when you went to so if your degree um course what age were you um, there did you go there did, did you actually stay there did you do it remotely how did that how did that come about for you so i so I, yeah so i i got i got into oxford the first time at 15 um, but age-wise, as 15, you know, as your question, you know, as you've got in your question, right, it means that everyone has to move. I'm the eldest of five children, and so that wasn't fair that the whole family is going to have to move <laughs> just because Amory sat on the computer a little bit long. Um, and so I ended up starting when I was 17. Then it was kind of agreeable, or okay, that I could be there on my own and have that full student okay. experience. So I went up at 17, and then by 20 was done with my master's in maths and computer science. Uh, okay. And how did you find that? Because... Um... I've, you know, when I, um, I don't live too far from Oxford, but I think it's quite an intimidating place in, so, in some sense. Is it kind of, 
you know, uh, to me, it's uh, when you look at the, you know, walk around the college, we look outside the colleges, it does feel kind of very, I can't describe it other than being a bit Harry Potter-esque in terms of its, <laughs> its feeling. And it's, um, his, you know, Fair's got a lot of history, of course. Um, did you have any particular preconceptions of Oxford or did it, did it, did it, was it any fear of you at all? Or was it just like, oh, it's just a, did, did you kind of, did you not think like that? Do you think, oh, it's just a building, there's just some people, I'm just going to be doing some maths. Do you think about do you think about it at all when you went um, in any way? So, so I so yes, I mean it's hard not to, right? I'd never really met anyone that had been to Oxford or Cambridge. I'd never, I'd barely been. Like I'd gone up for interviews and and the rest of it, but not but not really. I mean, we had, um, in fact, we had a family friend that lives in Cowley, so that would that had been the time right. that I'd kind of got got into Oxford and even known like how far away it was or anything like that, and so going you know I'm from East London we live on an A road on a dual carriageway or kind of the, the house backs onto one so I'm used to noise yeah I'm not used to urban settings um, and as much as Oxford is more urban than Cambridge you know I didn't sleep for the first two nights because it was way too quiet for me to settle <laughs> down um you know the Harry Potter-esque thing 100% is the thing being sat there like wow this is really me like I'm really here at the Oxford I remember you know you have to wear a uniform to exams. And I remember being sat in my exams, you know, dressed like a pe- penguin, looking <laughs> up, being like, wow, I'm really sat here. Like, you know, look at, it's almost like that. There's that meme of like, look at us. I don't know if you, if like folks, I don't know if you're internet culture, but, you know, being like, wow, look at me. Like, I'm really sat here writing a real exam at the Oxford in maths. Like, this is as if, as if this is where <laughs> this has ended up. Um, but I think I definitely, I definitely wanted to be there. I was definitely excited to be there. And um, I remember at 13 um, and and Connections, some folks listening will remember Connections, the kind of career service um, from kind of what, uh, late 90s, early noughties. But I remember being 13 and doing a a careers questionnaire um, in must have been PSHE or form time or something. And that yeah. um, spitting out that I should be a management consultant or assistance analyst as my okay. kind of role. So you answer questions, you know, yeah. work outside, work with animals, all the rest of that kind of stuff. So I answered all those questions. It came up with that. And then uh, management consultant, I kind of looked at the dossier, saw how much they were paid. And 13-year-old Amory was like, brilliant. It's a good amount of pay. Sounds, you know, <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds look all right. But also, I could be a management consultant. And I remember specifically thinking for Sainsbury's, which would mean I'd get free groceries, which would mean that the money would go even further, right, if I don't pay for groceries. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Pragmatic, very good, yeah. Right? And I was like, <laughs> set for life. And I remember in this connections, reading this extra bit of a kind of dossier. So you have the career and then you have like associated, you know, info packs. And there was one that said something like, you either 16, 10 or 12 one of those numbers times more likely to be a management consultant if you go to Oxford okay I remember reading that and thinking wow okay right so this Oxford thing vaguely aware maybe of having been there because Uncle Ben lives in Oxford but huh okay so if you go there you're more likely to be a management consultant so actually from 13 I was like okay maybe this is a thing that I could do because then I can (laughs) go to Oxford be a management consultant get my free groceries be set for life bish bash bosh (laughs) right all the decisions made um and so going up it was like yeah actually I also want to be here and I did initially want to be a management consultant I mean I'd done a work experience just before I went up um, in a bank and so I tweaked a little bit to be a management consultant for financial services um, which you know I didn't end up doing in the end because you know how life is but 
you know, I, I, and so the, the idea of being overwhelmed, it was like, well, actually, you know, this is part of a wider plan, right? Also, the people here are pretty, you know, pretty nice. I'm still friends with quite a lot of folks that I met in Oxford. Um, I'm getting to work with and and sit with people I would have never met or have never seen, but all, who also love maths to the level that I do and understand it to the level that I do. And so this is incredible. Um, and so, yeah, I, was, I had a really positive um, experience at Oxford. That's really good. And um, in terms of um, being a young black woman as well and being a representative uh, in terms of, well, increasing the diversity, because I guess all those, those high-level um, universities have... Um, perhaps some, some perception that they're not as diverse as, as they could be. Mm-hmm. Is there anything, I mean, you obviously had a great um, experience there as well, but um, uh, in terms of the work you do, how important is it do you think we, that you should be, there should be more kind of obvious uh, examples of people from di- different um, groups um, shown to be successful in things like STEM? Because um, uh, as being great mo- role models, I suppose, what, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, so I, I, I say, and I, I did have a positive, positive experience at Oxford, and I say it, and I'm very conscious of saying that out loud, knowing that you know I'm a young, I was, I was the youngest, the blackest, the femaleest in the room, right? <laughs> very, very often, yeah. Um, uh, and was wasn't made to feel like other in the main, and there were there were certain incidents that happened, but none of them were in that kind of space, that safe mathematical space, almost, yeah, right? Okay. They were. Um, or if they did happen, it wasn't actually because of what you'd think. So I'd say this all the time. I said this on my Life Scientific on Radio 4 as well, that I, kn- I remember at one point being the only person in the room that wasn't a bell ringer. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't expecting you to say that. <laughs> right, and, and, and that was it. And, and there's a thing, there's a there's quite a, there's a brilliant, a very inc- incredibly tight analogy actually between bell ringing, the bell ringing... Um, I still don't even know it now, right? Formations or like the orders or whatever uh, and abelian groups or group and group theory, basically. There's a, there's okay, a really tight okay. link between the two. And so there'll be certain sessions you turn up and it's not because I'm from East London. It's not because I'm black. It's not because I'm young. It's not because I'm a woman. It's because I don't ring bells. this is going over my head and now I'm feeling like the odd one out because I don't ring bells and it's like of all the things that you would have guessed you know and this is why representation is so important because it's not just about the protected characteristics and the outward but it's it's those life experiences they're almost a proxy for those life experiences yeah Um, and so it is really important for folks to you know be able to see that that's something that they can they can do. And, and as I said, you know, I'm not very perceptive. And so actually it took me a while and it's only actually on reflection, looking back to remember and to realize that, yeah, I was one of very few in our computer science lectures. There are about 70 of us. And there were three girls in those computer science lectures for the, for the first three years that we, that I was at Oxford. And it's one of those things that looking back it, because I wasn't made to feel like other mm. and because I'm not very perceptive, that lack of representation was not something that hindered me. But you shouldn't have to be, you know, have poor perception skills like me <laughs> to be able to thrive and survive in those spaces. But also now the work that I do with Stemets, I'm really, really conscious of folks who don't have such a positive experience, who are othered in quite a big way, who, you know, if I'd have stayed on um, and, you know, gone into, you know, become an academic, for example, in those spaces, I'm now aware as well of how I would have been treated, what that would have looked like, you know, the way the culture might have not enabled me to be able to thrive, you know, wherever I might be working as a researcher or, or working in academia. And so I think it is important, it is important to have that representation. And so for folks 
like me to see folks like themselves, you know, in the space for folks not like me to see folks like me in these spaces, but also for us to be able to build cultures that enable different types of folks to not feel like other. So then mm. they can thrive and we can benefit from what they do. Um, and like I say, it's, it's you know, the, the older I've got and the more life experience I've had, the more I've been able to kind of see what that lack of representation looks like. When I did Countdown, um, lots of folks know Countdown, are familiar with that as an institution, you know, have really fond memories of watching it. There are a lot of yeah. folks who, you know, and, and I'd say, you know, you, how do you know you're allergic to caviar? You have to kind of eat caviar the first time, right? And then have the big reaction. Then you're like, oh my goodness, that's something I can't have. You know, how do you know you're allergic to black women doing maths? Well, <laughs> for some people watching me on Channel 4 on Countdown, there was this big, what? How dare she? <laughs> how dare she be a black woman on my screen multiplying? How dare she? How very dare she? And so big backlash. And so it's one of those things where actually representation matters, not just for the folks that are being represented, but for others to be able to maybe build their tolerance Right. To the yeah. idea that people like me might be competent in something um, like mathematics, like computer science uh, or wider STEM or STEAM. Rachel Riley was on mat leave. And so I was the arithmetician for 60 odd episodes. Brilliant. Brilliant. And so um, did, um, did, I mean, that, I guess, uh, to me, as a not brilliant at mental maths, I guess you did you ever kind of have any, ever, any fear that you uh, would ever kind of have a problem that's difficult? Or is it kind of so low down there for the kind of questions you get? <laughs> you could always do it uh, because. I guess is it is it live? No, they must record it. I guess so. You maybe it's pre-recorded. You do five episodes in a day, three days on the trot. Okay. Okay. Yep. Um, and I'll be honest. You know, as it, it's not it's not on the syllabus. It's not on the syllabus for the <laughs> masters. No, I know. I mean, that's what I mean. But for your brain, is that did it seem like well, that's just like me doing uh, number ones to ten. You could do whatever any number under a thousand. It's not a problem for you, probably. Eventually, yes. Yeah. So, so there was a bit of practice. I had a little bit of notice on knowing I was going to do it. I wasn't just thrust in front of the cameras. Okay, to be honest, okay. though, that's the bit you can practice. The bit you can't practice is then being on set with everything else that there is on set with either yeah. big hair that then blocks this side of the camera or big hair that blocks that person or them yelling ISO. Like, I mean, still to today, I don't really know what ISO means, but yelling ISO in your ear while okay. trying to do that then having to remember not just the answer but to write the answer in a way that's legible but also having to check someone else's answer while holding that answer in your head so all of that that i mean doing the maths anyone can anyone can sit and do that maths in the okay. right environment but i think right, just okay. doing it on set with all of that and and everything at the same time was the bit that it was almost as if I, even counting right most people can count but if someone starts saying numbers while you're counting, it puts you off. And I think that's the way that I described, or I, just, I would describe being the arithmetician on Countdown. It's like someone counting while you're trying to count. Because if they get it wrong, you still have to have space. And this is all the kind of the TV thing, right? You still have to have space on the right-hand side to put the yeah. correct answer in. And these are all the silly things that you have to hold in that then, you know, if you've spent all your energy working out the numbers, then there's all these other things you have to remember to kind of do at the same time. So... It was a it was a roller coaster, but you know, definitely admire Rachel for putting herself through that all the time. <laughs> so, so generally, a positive experience. That wasn't kind of too, uh, as in was it? He said that kind of in, in, in today it might be a bit of negativity. Or was it just more of a surprise of kind of people that uh, it was a young black woman doing maths, or was it generally you know you know generally a positive experience? Oh, so it was mostly a positive experience. Um, mostly. I think the the funny thing or the interesting thing about it is, you know, you asked about representation. I think it was it was a it was a it was 
I'm I'm conscious now, again, in the kind of spaces that I get to occupy of what it means for me to turn up and to be there. And sometimes that kind of almost looks like an act of protest to to others if I'm on a board or if I'm on a stage or if I'm on TV doing X, Y and Z. I think the interesting thing was not quite the backlash because I've been a young black woman my whole life. And so I've seen backlash in all, all kind of places. But what that looked like in a public space versus in a private space. And Mm -hmm. I think this is this is the other thing that we have to be able to unpick. It's not just about the representation or it's not just about the diversity, but it's also that inclusion and that sense of belonging Um, and being able to see and folks being able to see that. I think, you know, post George Floyd's murder, I think there's a lot that, oh, you know, I can't believe there's some people that reached out and were like, I'm so sorry. This is something that you had to go through. And I'm like, okay, cool. You know, I'm surprised. And I was like, yeah, I'm not, I've been a black woman for 30 years. Mm. A lot of these things don't surprise me. If it surprises you, then do something with the surprise that you have. (laughs) Because this has happened in a very public space and there'll be things that will be happening in very private spaces that you're privy to. And so Mm. do something for the Amorys that are closer to you. And so that ended up being the learning, the lesson, the message for others. In addition to, of course, the people being like, oh, you know, because you're on and you're wearing trainers. This is a show I feel like I can watch, right? Or me and my daughter sit and watch it every day. And now she's going to go and be a mathematician like you, or she's, you know, going to sit up more in math class. So, you know, there's lot, lots of different lessons learned, I guess, across that experience. Okay. And um, just changing tack a little bit. So one question that occurred to me about STEM generally um, and the kind of STEM conversations that I often hear is about specifically physics, actually. Physics being... A bit of a, um, I don't know if we define it as a, as a problem, but as a, a challenge, I guess, in terms of the, there is a, a gender imbalance, roughly about um, 25% uh, girls, roughly, doing A-level physics, less uh, 75% uh, boys doing A-level physics. Uh, and weird, strangely, there's the subjects on the other end, so that things like A-level psychology is the opposite. It's like 75% female uh, candidates and 25% um, uh, male candidates. So in terms of physics, what is because you kind of alluded to it earlier, is there something fundamental about physics that means that it is, it is challenging to, to get more girls to kind of embrace it? What is the, what is it about physics? It doesn't seem to, to be the, to the same degree in chemistry and biology, which are also sciences and not in maths at all. Um, it just seems odd that it's kind of like it's outlier. It doesn't seem to, at the moment, appeal to the same degree. Any thoughts on physics and the kind of challenges it, 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 it kind of links to in terms of getting a, good, a better gender balance? Yeah, sure. So um, Professor Louise Archer at the Institute of Education has done a lot of work on this. And I and I know the Institute of Physics have kind of delved in and tried to uh, do a lot of kind of practical work across schools. I think the, and this is from Louise Archer's work, actually, Professor Archer's work, is the, the thing with physics is there's a physics culture or there's a sense around physics of you're either born to do it or you're not which the other subjects haven't had, or if they have had, they've managed to root it out or they've moved on a little bit or they've evolved. Whereas with physics, there's this sense of you either get it or you don't. You're either born with it or you're not. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not that it's something you can work at to get or to understand or to be good at. Um, And this is, you know, she kind of looked the whole way through the process and this is something that you have within academia then filters down and is in the language is in the labs is in you know the way that the whole thing is set up it's almost the church of physics I think at some point <laughs> you kind of put it of you know the, the pope is selected by God himself right there's, there's nothing you can humanly do to right. be pope it's it's a higher power it's all above you and I think physics is still a subject that 
that sees itself and operates. And if you're someone that does well, that's something that then gets reinforced for you that you were born to do it. And so why would you then break from the traditions of that culture? If it's something that's benefited you, it's something that's put you in that position of power. If that's what your, um, if that's what your, your kind of your cachet, right? Your social cachet is built on that. Then why would you deviate from it? Or why would you allow a mere mortal to learn the physics and then be worthy of sitting alongside you right and and you know whether it's the incidents that we get to see you know a couple of years ago there was the, the guy that made that joke was at a, a lunch for of women physicists and, and made a joke you know a, a gender joke at their expense at this lunch. it's like of all places to have made that as a joke you felt so comfortable that you've come and you've done that here uh, and yet you're still you know you still got tenure you're still upheld as one of these gods or one of these prophets of physics and I think it's you've got that in physics much more than you have in the other subjects as, as almost a subculture yeah. um, that then only is only it only is going to be reinforced right this is this is how power works it's only ever going to be reinforced why would anyone ever deviate from that um if they've been allowed or been brought into physics um or if they if they were the exception that proves the rule that's now been allowed in that space you're there precariously <laughs> so why would you rock the boat and say well no actually it's not a god-given right that you know physics or don't know physics it's something we've all learnt and studied Yes, it's kind of, um, I mean, I mean, do you think that, um, is there a way it kind of almost be presented in physics, as in, is there a different way of presenting, obviously there's lots of things in physics are about moving objects or circuits or um, basically in a sense things rather than, uh, you know, uh, in biology, I'm trying to think, trying to pose this question in, a, in the right way, as in biology, biology seems a bit more humanistic for some reason to me. Yeah, caring. It's caring. It's those C's. Yeah, it's the C's. It's the caring. I mean, the, the, the biology and chemistry have obviously tied very closely, academically at least, right, to medicine. And if you want to care, if you want to look after people, um, also if you want to have a job for life, I guess, in some cultures it's seen as that way as well, then yeah, you do medicine. Yeah, and physics yeah. physics isn't, isn't a core or a compulsory part of that route. Um, so I think it's definitely that. But yeah, physics also isn't seen as caring um, or altruistic. I guess we talk about this a lot as Demets, being able to talk about the altruistic end of the subject often it's you know let's get let's go harder faster bigger stronger and it's like okay cool but not everyone is motivated by those uh those adverbs and so what's what is what is the other upshot what are the other benefits what are the other values to society of physics that we can hone in on that you know just because the folks who are in physics at the moment wanted things that were bigger stronger faster doesn't mean that everyone also needs to have that as a prerequisite for being a physicist um, and so how do we allow folks to kind of identify with the other uses of physics? Yeah, so I was thinking, uh, as, you, as you're talking about the kind of the, the so in a sense, so the, the coldness of physics sometimes in terms of it's about, it's about, it's about things which are fascinating, you know, the universe, mass, you know, stars exploding, all the rest of it. Um, is there anything you can think you can do it in about the subject itself um, that could make it a bit more, bit, bit more human. Is there any way that, say, in senior, you know, senior schools, you know, before um, young people then make that decision to move on from, say, GCSE to to A level, could you tweak the content in any way to make it a bit more um, appealing? Is there anything that, that you think could be done, or is it you've got to do the fundamentals like you do in maths? You've got you've got to do the force. You've got to do Newton's law. You've got to do, you know, the, the this types of circuits. Is there any way it could be framed in a different way? Do you think? But I, I mean, it's still the, it's the altruism and it's the connection to society. Um, okay. and, I, and I think that's something that, uh, interestingly, kind of higher up in, in higher education, 
uh, it's still something that folks are kind of, you, you have to be able to talk about kind of the benefits of society, right? Or the research that you're doing in order to, to be, you know, know that it's excellent or whatever it might be, all these different definitions that we have. Um, and so being able to articulate those benefits to society or where that's used or where that solved problems for folks. I think, you know, we've ended up making space in not quite the maths curriculum, but computer science curriculum, definitely on society and computer science. Um, and I think we've had to do that because of how fast the field is moving at the moment with, I don't know, AI or VR or whatever it is that you want to kind of throw in any buzzwords or tech trends or web three or whatever. But I think with physics, being able to kind of link that back again to society, what, you know, beyond let's say bridges and kind of structures and, and even with biz, bridges and structures you know what's the physics of climate change for example I think being able to talk to that a little bit more will allow folks and and controversially I do wonder whether you know the lack of uptake we have from particular groups is it is it better that everyone learns all of those supposed fundamentals and we cut the society piece or actually is it better for us to cut back on some of those and allow folks to at least you know, see the relevance and, and grab a little bit. And then if they want to continue on, then that can be a fundamental that they learn higher up. Um, almost in the way that I think we structure chemistry curricula, right? We have, that's the kind of running joke, right? Everything you learn at GCSE chemistry, by the time you do A-level chemistry, they tell you to forget all of it. Because we're going to, you know, <laughs> and then by the time you get to uni, it's the same thing again. <laughs> but also, how many of those fundamentals will folks be able to see in the BTEC, right, or in, in some of the other uh, routes that we have, if they've been able to access that at GCSE, I, I think there is something of, you know, that practical end of physics that maybe we could talk a little bit more to, as well as who does the physics. I think that's probably the other thing. Of course, yeah. you know, lot, 10 years of STEMETs, you know, where are, the, where are the physicists that are also women? And how do we tell their stories and have them codified into the curriculum, which has been a big part of what we've done as part of our 10-year celebrations at STEMETs is how do we get more of those names? You know, you've mentioned Newtonian laws, Yes, mm. they are fundamental and they're important, but what else, what, what other, you know, Jocelyn, Bur Jocelyn Bell Burnell, you know, how much of yeah. that can we, and should we codify so folks don't just hear Isaac, 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 I, I'm not Isaac, I'm not ever going to be known as Isaac, or, you know, I might not necessarily identify with someone who's, who's dead and white and male and had a beard in all depictions that we have of Isaac Newton. <laughs> and so there are other, other people that might be what success could look like across STEM and within physics, and how much do we show those different versions of success so that folks can then identify and, and maybe step into it a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in terms of your STEMETs, which do a lot of great work there, what, in, in terms of your organisation, um, what do you tend to like to do, as it were, as in, is your mission to um, get young physicists, female physicists into schools to talk to them? Is, is it practicals you do with them? Um, is it uh, debates? What kind, of, um, organ what kind of things do you do within your organisation to try and raise the profile uh, of, um, for, for young women? It's a mixture of lots of different things. And for teachers in particular, our thing has always been, you know, there's, it's it's hard. What you do is hard, right? You're trying to balance quite a lot of stakeholders in quite a fraught system at the moment. And so our thing has always been, how can we how can we relieve you of some of that pressure? How can we enrich and how can we build on what you be what you have to do within that formal um, science uh, environment and so whether it's school trips getting folks out to I don't know companies like Electa or Mercedes F1 to come and see in practice physically what this looks like um, or whether it's us coming into schools um, and getting folks to do um, more creative challenges work you know we do kind of classroom takeovers we might do panel sessions um, we might uh, come in and yeah bring some role models in for you to get to see 
you know, someone who didn't do physics GCSE, who now is working in a space like this, or folks who did do physics GCSE, who are now, you know, applying that somewhere very differently. It's not just about physics, of course, it's the wider STEM. So there's quite a lot that we do for teachers. We also have an online resource called Stemets Zine, where you're able to, um, you know, pick up and learn about the role models, also learn about you know, all the other kind of core skills rather than soft skills around building a career, understanding what happens next. Uh, and then the final thing that we have for teachers and for schools in particular is our STEM club. So we run Stimillions STEM clubs where between primary and secondary, it, the offer differs slightly, but we'll actually send out a pack of 10 weeks worth of activities centered around a role model linked to the national curriculum. But again, where it's activities where, I don't know, we might be using sweets to look at... Um, electrons on a on an atom or we might be you know using a ai ai software to explore how design might change for a particular pharmacy of the future you know and so lots of different content we're trying to do to to lift it lift the curriculum a little bit off the page but also to empower teachers because i think also being in the classroom there's a lot of things you don't get to see and so how do you keep up to date on whatever the newest trend is and what that might mean for your students given that they might not be doing the jobs of today as you know when they're graduating when they're leaving school you know the time that you're in the classroom with them there will be roles that they're now doing that didn't even exist when you're in the classroom and so it's almost an impossible task to keep up to date and so across our newsletter across the millions across the school trips um in and out of school where they're just as a resource actually for teachers and then for any of those students that you're not able to support because of how many you're having to look after at any given time, you know, to continue to connect them into industry, into academia and into entrepreneurship as well as the different routes that they have across STEM and STEAM. Okay, so plenty to do. So just head to the website and there's, if you're a teacher, just find out find out more and, and, and book those, those sessions. So just to finish off, Anne-Marie, um, I want to talk to you about the thing that everyone seems to be talking about in 2023, which is which is which is AI and yeah. <laughs> obviously that is deeply embedded in your world of uh, computer science. You know, um, I hear lots of scare stories on various podcasts about um, us creating a super intelligence that will ultimately destroy us, which which may happen. I don't know, but um, just generally, generally, um, I, I'm assuming, I'm maybe I'm guessing that that you're kind of pro AI generally in terms of the, the opportunities it presents. Um, but yeah, what are your general thoughts about that in education and what we should be perhaps leveraging and thinking about the future for, for future work in schools, perhaps? Any any thoughts on AI um, generally? I was talking to someone the other day. AI is a tool, right? It's like it's like saying you're pro scissors, right? And scissors okay. are incredibly dangerous, right? We, mm. you, you have to be over 18 to be able to buy them in the shop. Let, yeah. Yet classrooms around the world have scissors right for for pretty young people and you you use them in the right environment in the right way you don't run with scissors you know we have all of these things and you can use scissors to create a beautiful snowflake around christmas time if it's winter time but you can also use scissors to cut someone else's hair in a classroom or or, or harm them and so ai is is a tool like scissors okay. are a tool um right. and so where i'm pro ai um in uh, helping folks to understand more of the world around them. I'm pro AI in um, improving processes and allowing you to, I don't know, randomly allocate the whiteboard monitor for this lesson, or I'm pro AI for helping it, helping students to, I don't know, build study guides or have a nub of an essay that they then build out and they then go and do their own research. Or I'm not pro AI and just using it for the sake of it is going to solve our problems. You know, we talk a lot about the risk of bias and the risk of, 
um, kind of anti-fairness. I think there's also a capability risk as well that we often don't get to talk about, which is the hype cycle is so big and the opportunity is so large. There's still such a way that we need to go on having AI that functions as promised 90% of the time. You know, the the, the whole debate, someone asked me the other day, like, you know, someone came to me actually and was like, oh, I'm really you know, my husband's a teacher and this student turned in an essay. Can you believe the student turned in an essay that was completely chat GPT and he called in the parents and the parents didn't know what was wrong. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, if you'd have looked at the essay, if your husband had looked at the essay, they'd have been littered with mistakes because AI hallucinates, chat GPT hallucinates all the time. <laughs> and so it's like, you could have just marked the essay they'd have got half of it wrong or ask them to defend what was in it, right? Because you can't just print. It's like, is it your work? Is it not your work? Can you at least independently talk about what's in this essay, right? Which Imperial are now doing across their assessments, right? And so I think it's, it's we have to be wise about how we use the tool in the same way that we have, we've had to be wise about how we deploy scissors in the classroom. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot that we can use it to help folks imagine, right? To generate, you know, beginnings of lesson plans, for example, on a particular topic to understand, um, synthesize information. Like there's quite a lot of use cases that we have for AI, but the idea that it's going to take over teachers, I mean, you know, don't, don't worry, you're safe. I think that's one of the things that we're, we're all agreed on is that actually AI can't replace teachers. Um, whether it can be used better in assessment or in teaching, sure. But that idea of connection with another human being, I think is something that, you know, we can't, and we, we definitely won't, un, won't undervalue and, and we definitely don't have the technology at the moment to be able to do that in any meaningful way. Um, but there's lots. I, I think that the thing is to, to experiment and to play. Experiment and play. Uh, build your understanding. And also talk with your students. Talk with your pupils. You know, what are they using it for? What are they imagining it might be useful for? What are the risks? What are the upsides? Right? And, and, and how is that going to be something that you're all going to be able to use to enrich that learning environment and that learning experience. I think the capacity for personalization is huge. Um, the capacity for assessment, I do still think is is large, but you know, with keeping those risks in mind, because we, st we struggle to do assessment as human beings, being able to codify it into a computer, you know, to then be able to do that millions of times in a, in a day or in a second. You know, there's a question about whether we're gonna be able to, to do that in a way that meaningfully soon. But I think just remember that, you know, the, the AI, you know, we're in control of the computers, they'll do what we're asking them to do. And so let's make sure we're asking them, let's make sure we're thinking correctly about what we're asking them to do. Yeah, and asking them, yeah, to do, to do, to do the right things, I guess. And I think that um, the, yeah, I think we do know, obviously change um, has opportunities for assessment, definitely. And almost the importance of, um, when you talk about the essay, I think it's how, how, you know, in the future, the way in which we, yeah, we talk to students and assess students has going to have to be different because the essay perhaps is, is, is on its way out in terms of a way within humanities perhaps to, to, um, to, 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 to kind of grade people if that's one, one, one of a better word because I guess that you mentioned also hallucinations and my early experience, and I know it would probably get better by next year, probably won't have any mistakes at all, but you almost, <laughs> <laughs> the last is maybe not, but the, when you put in a question about something you know about, obviously know about, do you see the errors? But obviously young people aren't going to see the errors, even if it's just like a, maybe I put some sciencey thing and I know some things that are not quite right. Um, but that's even worse when you're, you know, a young person or just this person that's new to a topic and they, and they can't necessarily see the the errors. So, uh, you know, there's still a degree, I suppose, that, that, that there needs to be some fundamental knowledge that we need to understand. 
before we um, jump straight onto you know whichever AI bot it's going to be. Um, to yeah, or, or to challenge, which I think I think this is the thing. I mean, I mean, your interesting point there about essays. They shouldn't they shouldn't be the only way that we have yeah. to evaluate, to assess, to explore. And yeah. so there should be other things, but there is something in the questions that you're able to ask. I mean, ask your students. You know, ChatGPT puts together an essay, puts something together. Ask it for references. Ask it for sources click through to those sources how many of those sources exist and how many of those sources are also fabricated and it was it was the same with wikipedia right if you go back far enough i'm sure there'll be teachers who wikipedia came out when they were studying and in the end it had to be wikipedia is not a source right you take it to have a general understanding but you still have to go and find a source and wikipedia actually had real sources on it right and we were still had yes. to to cast doubt on it because anyone could edit it at any point and i think it's just an evolution of that so there is that you know, we talk about these future skills of being able to ask questions, being able to collaborate, being able to synthesize. And I think it's those are still what we're going to need to ensure that we're empowering our pupils and our students with. It's not just about the knowledge now, because knowledge is ever evolving, but it's about the tools around that. It's about how you learn. Right. It's about how you yeah, how you ask questions, how you challenge, how you critical thought folks talk about quite a lot and how you create. And I think it's all of those how we assessing folks being able to do that across different spheres of knowledge um and you know they're all manner of folks who are kind of calling for a big revolution where should we even still have a subject-based approach right should it be more themes and broader and wider and then how do you assess how do you ensure folks have the same do folks need to have the same you know levels of knowledge across all of these things to be useful in society right what is the point of education you know and so there's all these bigger questions we need to then ask which you know um yeah, there are some folks who are still kind of quite radically thinking that through, but I feel like that that change is needed sooner rather than later because the, the future is kind of already here. And there are so many things that we're being forced to do or have to do, you know, because of what was done however many centuries ago that won't be fit for purpose and already proving not to be fit for purpose in a society where lifelong learning is going to have to be the norm rather than focusing all the pressure on the teachers and the relationships you have with your teachers pre-18 or even pre-21. Yeah, definitely. I think there's definitely time for a part two at some point, but I'm running out of time with you today, <laughs> Anne-Marie, I'm afraid. Um, just to finish off, um, I would recommend definitely uh, checking out Anne-Marie's books, um, She's in Control, and your maths, what is it, Be a Maths Whiz, I how believe. To be, yeah, yeah, How to Be a Maths, be a maths Whiz. whiz. Yeah. yeah, so both of those I would definitely check out. And um, we haven't got much longer, but is there anything else you'd like to add uh, as a message to the world, Anne-Marie, before we head off uh, into the podcast sunset? My message to the world would be um, we don't have to don't have to, you know, be accidentally killed by the robots. Nothing that has been said is inevitable. It's all about the decisions that we're making. Uh, it's way too important to leave to the technologists. And as a teacher, you've got such a great opportunity and so much leverage for ensuring that yeah, the, the leaders of tomorrow have the right kind of basis and right kind of founding. So good luck, Godspeed. And we estimates are here to help and support, uh, especially for ensuring that we've got more of those young women um, and young non-binary folks engaging with STEM and with STEAM. So do reach out, don't hesitate to be in touch. Brilliant, that's a lovely note to end on. Thanks so much for joining me today on View From The Lab. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of the View from the Lab podcast. Hope you found this episode inspiring. I certainly did. Who do you want on the podcast next? Give me some suggestions and I'll do my best to find them. Feel free to email me at andy.woods at pearson.com. We're going to wrap things up now. So until next time, au revoir and I'll see you on the next one. <laughs>